Well, for those of you here this morning who are the skit writers for our annual Christmas party, get your pencils out. I'm getting ready to tell you another quaint little story about growing up at the holler that you'll be sure to want to ridicule at next year's party. The secluded pond at the head of the holler, or you might know it as a dead end, was the place that my two older brothers and all of our little holler buddies liked to go. We fished in that pond, we swam in it, we camped beside it, and on occasion when we were naughty boys, we would steal the cigarettes of some adults and smoke by it. Both of my parents are dead, so I can say that out loud now. <laughs> but in order to get to that place, we had to pass by the Dobbins house, and they had a big, sinister German shepherd, and that dog would never leave us alone. He would always come out barking ferociously and chasing us, so we had to develop strategies to get around that dog. Sometimes we would get off our bikes very quietly and try to sneak by without the dog noticing. Other times we tried to ride so quickly past the house that the dog couldn't keep up with us. Sometimes we went behind the houses on the opposite side of the dirt road to bypass that dog. And sometimes, because it was such a challenge to get around that dog, we didn't bother to go to the pond at all. We had to change our behavior just because that dog wouldn't leave us alone. While God's word is not sinister, it won't leave us alone either. By God's design, God's word is intended to change us. Last week, we saw the crowd that listened to Jesus. They mumbled and complained about his teaching and they stopped following his disciples. And so the word of God turned them away. On the road to Emmaus, on the day of his resurrection, Jesus, incognito, taught two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And later when they discovered who he really was, they said, Where are our hearts not burning within us? As he opened to us the word of God, the word impassioned them. In between are people who are still wondering, questioning, marveling. They said, No one ever spoke like this man. And so the word of God puzzled them. The Puritans famously called God the hound of heaven because God is relentless in his pursuit of us. I think the same can and must be said about God's word, even though you and I often just want to be left alone. God's word goes after us until it changes us until it gets us to that better place that God has for us, a place of holiness, a place of order, a place of Christ-likeness. He won't leave us alone until we get there. And neither will he leave alone our families until he has gotten our families to that good and better place that he has for us. But he will do this. He will watch us. And be with us all along the way. Therefore, you and I must order 
our families. We must order our lives with this comfort that God always sees and God always knows. And that's what we're going to talk about as we return this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you will kindly take out your Bibles or the one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place in 1 Peter chapter 3, would you stand please so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not, let, and do not fear anything that's frightening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. We come to these same verses once again this morning. There's such richness in them. Teach us more and more as we mine from them uh, the gold, the gold of the truth of your word. It will take your spirit at work in us to do it. So we ask for his work among us now that he might join your word and bring change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. Well, this is week four on these verses, and we've seen that this is a command. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That seems very difficult for us to obey. And it is one of those commands that we often seek strategies to go around, to keep from obeying. But the verse will not leave us alone. Instead, we've seen that it requires from all of us extreme obedience. And so over the course of the last three weeks, I've made four observations about this passage that characterize extreme obedience. Number one, extreme obedience requires a kingdom perspective. Number two, extreme obedience requires a shepherd's guiding hand. Number three, extreme obedience is countercultural. And number four, from last week, extreme obedience is hard. This morning, I'm going to add one more observation. And this observation does not follow the sequence of these verses, but it does give us comfort as we seek to obey the rest of them. And at least for me, it makes extreme obedience a little easier. And the observation is this. We can be extremely obedient because God sees and God knows. We can be extremely obedient because God sees and God knows. Look again in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight 
is very precious. In God's sight. The nuances of the meanings of this word, sight, cover a spectrum. Holding a position in front of an entity, being present, or it can pertain to a value judgment or opinion. Now, all three of those have application here, not just for wives, but for all of us. First, we all live all the time in front of God. True statement. Secondly, God is always present. True statement. That's why we call him omnipresent. Thirdly, God has an opinion. And God is making a judgment about what we think and what we do when we are in front of him. And so I'll remind you once again of the theological term that you know well that describes this reality of living in the sight of God, and that is quorum deo, quorum deo, before the face of God. R.C. Sproul writes, to live quorum deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. That can be a scary truth for us, can't it be? If we are doing what is wrong because God is a holy God. But I believe this truth is also intended to encourage us with a tender and comforting truth. Imagine the hope that this phrase, in God's sight, gave to the women who first heard this letter read. They knew their inferior status in their culture. They felt the sting of that that status, but God sees and God knows, and they are not abandoned. And God makes a pronouncement here on the obedience that he sees. He affixes a value judgment to it. He expresses his opinion of it. In verse 4, he says that this obedience is precious, which means that it is of great value and worth to God. Before the face of God, this obedience is precious. They are precious. Precious. When they order their lives and their homes according to the word of God. Whose opinion could be more important than the opinion of the one and only true and living God? Whose judgment is more correct The judgment of this world or the judgment of the loving Father who created you and me and who in this very moment is the one who is sustaining our lives. It's very interesting that the very first time that God is identified in Scripture as a seeing God 
is in the context of domestic chaos. Peter mentions here in these verses, Abraham and Sarah. Let's go back to them for just a moment. And I do this at the risk of being accused of or promoting domestic abuse. I have been charged with that. Can I just tell you? (laughs) We can't dwell on it and don't get distracted by it. But I got a call this week. Pastors around Charleston are listening to my sermons. Organizations and their lawyers are listening to my sermons. They are trying to determine what should be done with Craig. So y'all listen up. I am not advocating domestic abuse. Did everybody hear that? Did y'all hear that? You will as soon as we post this online. Now forget about that. Because I am right now going to unashamedly tell you the truth as I relate this story from Genesis chapter 16. Hagar is a servant in the household of Abraham and Sarah. And when this couple had gotten too old by their own estimation to have the child that God had promised to them, they decided to help God out. And Sarah said to her husband Abraham, why don't you just take my servant Hagar and have a child through her? Well, Abraham was more than willing. He agreed and Hagar conceived. And when Hagar was carrying Abraham's child, she began to look at Sarah with contempt because she was unable to have a child. In return, Sarah dealt so harshly with with, uh, Hagar, Scripture says, that she fled into the wilderness. And so we see domestic chaos on so many levels In this story. But the good news is that God sees. Scripture says that the angel, the angel of the Lord, found Hagar in the wilderness. And whenever we read the angel of the Lord, we know that we are talking about the pre incarnate Christ. And so it's Christ Himself, before He took on flesh, who finds. Hagar in the wilderness, and he listens to her brief story. And now I quote directly from Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And so the Lord has Hagar return with his promise and with his purpose that is bigger than just the life of Hagar. And now, listen to Hagar's reaction to the one who sent her back. These are her words from Genesis 16. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her You are a seeing God, El-Roi. You are a seeing God. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. 
That's why Hagar was able to get up and to go back. For those who reject the authenticity and the historicity of the Old Testament, some of our listeners may do that. The reality of its characters brought into question. The inspiration and the accuracy of the Old Testament questioned. This to them is a story that must not ever be repeated again. Now the tragedy in that is that they lose out on this beautiful truth that God is a God who sees. Is that not beautiful? He's a God who knows. Those of us who believe Scripture is the Word of God. Those of us who believe that through it, God guides us to that place where we are more holy, where we are more like Christ. We see that God is a seeing God and we rejoice. God will not turn his face away from Hagar. He has a place he wants her to be and he will still see her when she gets to that place. Coram Deo, God sees. I'm not telling anyone here this morning to go back to anything because only God can do that. What I am reminding each of us of is this, that God sees and that God knows even when he calls us to something difficult. I'm reminding us that we have the promises of God. I'm reminding us that our lives are part of a bigger story than our own lives, that we have a bigger purpose than just living for ourselves. Hagar was willing to take her place in God's purpose because she believed God's promises to her. And so she obeyed extremely and she went back. Again, this is God's purpose for Hagar's life. I'm not Hagar. You're not Hagar. But each of us better be attuned to the will that God has for us as Hagar was in her situation was attuned to what God had for her in her life. We must always be seeking the truth from his word, seeking his will, seeking his way and his order for us. And if he calls us to do something difficult, even that we can do because we know that God sees and God knows. Caveats don't exist for God. As if we could say to him, well, Lord, you know, in my case, yeah, the Lord knows your case. And the Lord knows my case full well. And he's in the midst of our case with us. And he is accomplishing a glorious purpose in it and through it when we will submit our lives to him. All of us. And even better is this. That the Lord Jesus himself understands our suffering. If that's the thing to which God calls us. He endured suffering. Because he knew the purpose that his suffering would accomplish. The will of God would be fulfilled by it. And so he submitted to it. He could submit 
to suffering because Jesus too lived before the face of God. We talked about the passive obedience of Christ a few weeks and we saw that all of his life, really the entirety of it, was one of suffering in this sinful world. But of course, that suffering was most intense and most painful when Christ was on the cross. But Jesus knows something on the cross. He still is before the face of God. I know that that runs contrary to our thinking. It runs contrary to our singing. The Father turned his face away, right? That's what we believe. And that thought certainly intensifies our emotions. When we think of God turning his face away from his Son because of our sin. But is it true? It's a much bigger topic than time allows this morning. But I want you to consider These three truths. First, on the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Psalm 22 begins with these exact same words. Psalm 22 ends with these words, He has done it. And on the cross, Jesus says, It is finished. And so it seems clear that Jesus is identifying himself as the one who was spoken of in Psalm 22, though it was written a thousand years before he lived and before he fulfilled it. Secondly, the point of comparison between Psalm 22 and Jesus' words on the cross are not that the Father turned his face away from Jesus, but instead... That Jesus was forsaken by God. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, the Father did not come to his aid. The Father did not rescue him. Listen carefully to the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? It isn't that The Father broke the eternal connection that existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reality is just that God did not come to the aid of Jesus when he was on the cross. But then again, neither did Jesus come to his own aid, did he? Jesus did not call the 10,000 angels that he could have called to come and rescue him from the cross. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had determined from the foundation of the world not to come to the aid of, not to rescue Jesus from the cross in order that our salvation might be accomplished. Is that good news? Jesus certainly felt abandoned on the cross when his Father did not come to him as his Father had come to the aid of so many others in distress. But this same psalm, Psalm 22, specifically says this. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. 
and he has not hidden his face from him. Thirdly, God was not required to turn his face away from Jesus because God cannot look at sin. We believe that's true because of verses like Habakkuk 1.13. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Or Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But do these really verses really mean that there is something somewhere in creation that God cannot see? How can that be true? If he's omnipresent, did he not look upon the first sin? Did he not come immediately to the Garden of Eden after it was committed? Did he not see Adam and Eve and look upon them and their sinful condition? Did he not see them struggling to hide the shame of their sinful nakedness? And was he not the one who provided clothes for them to cover their sin and shame? Coram Deo, we are always before the face of God. And surely it must be that God is most pleased with his son when Jesus died on the cross. Twice already at his baptism and at his transfiguration, God has said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. How could the father be even any more pleased with his son than when his son was obedient to the point of death on the cross, looking upon the perfection of the obedience of the Son must have been the greatest pleasure for the Father. Son, you did it. The great hope and the great comfort for us is that God does not turn away from us. Not even in our sin is that good news. Instead, He sees us even when we're in the midst of it. And he calls to us, come unto me, repent. And then he pursues us with his word because there is a better place that the Lord wants you and me to be. And so our objective should not be to determine strategies to get around the word of God. No. Because we obey under his watchful eye, the Lord sees you struggling to order your family as he says it should be ordered. The Lord sees the ridicule you receive from our perverse culture who ridicules you and even pours out their wrath on you for your obedience to God. Particularly, he sees every wife who seeks to be extremely obedient. And your obedience is precious to him. And I do not say that in a condescending way. Oh, how precious. 
No, it's true. It's precious to the Lord. You're precious to the Lord. Your obedience is precious to the Lord. And so is the obedience of every one of us in this room this morning. Because all of us, when we are God's children, are precious to Him. And that's why He's with us. He always sees. He always knows. Don't give up. The Father sees. The Father knows. Never will He turn His face away from you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such good news for us that you see our struggles, our difficulties. You know them. You know our suffering. You suffered far more than we ever would or even could imagine that you did as the perfect son of God. And so, Father, encourage us with the truth that you are God, El Roi, the God who sees. Chasten us with that truth, Father, when we walk away from your will and your way. But encourage us with it when we seek to live and to order our lives as you tell us we ought. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.